The deadline to write a new farm bill is September 30th. South Dakota's senior senator talks about what's essential in a new bill. From SDPB Radio, today is Tuesday, August 22nd, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, U.S. Senator John Thune joins us in the studio. We'll ask him about farm bill protection tied to extreme weather events and climate disasters. We'll also talk about what's happening in the Black Hills National Forest. From mining exploration to the timber inventory, we'll explore the senator's priorities from Ellsworth to Custer. We'll also dive into new research today about the nation's electrical grid. And John Bakken joins us with music jams from old friends and new voices. That's coming later in the hour. We are broadcasting live from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. Throughout August, people across the state and the country are raising awareness about a serious issue, drug overdoses. Well, during this Overdose Awareness Month, we're going to explore what causes overdoses, their dangers, and how to prevent them. Randy Peterson is a Substance Use Disorder Services Program Manager, and Shana Smichael is a Substance Use Prevention Program Manager, and both work for the Division of Behavioral Health, and they've stopped by the Kirby Family Studio here in Sioux Falls to say hello. Um, Randy, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Shana, you as well. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. An important message today, and I feel like we should start start a little bit with some of the basics because what exactly is an overdose? What's happening in the body? What's happening in our communities? Help explain that. Who wants to begin? I'll start. So it means having too much of a substance or even multiple substances in the body at one time. And really, um, that can be illicit substances that are illegal or even legal substances if you have too much of a prescription. Um, And really, it impacts the brain, which sends signals to the nervous system. And based off of the type of substance you're using, can either slow it down or speed it up, which causes the impact of an overdose. Do do people know it's happening before it's too late? I think because there are accidental overdoses that are fairly common, it can sneak up on you. What are some of the, the warning signs that people need to be aware of, Shana? Yeah, there are plenty of them, and and you you said it perfectly. People don't always know um, that it's coming, and so it's important to raise awareness to the public as well as the individual on what is a normal side effect of a medication or something and what might signal that something is wrong. And so people just should just very be aware of what an overdose does to the body, what to look for, signs, symptoms. So maybe some pale skin, bluish lips, pinpoint pupils or super dilated pupils, someone being a little bit more groggy, not breathing well. Those are some symptoms that people should be on the lookout for. So let's talk about when you need help because kids are going back to school, college students are going back to college, and it can be a very difficult thing to reach out to authorities at your university or in your community and say, I think something has gone too far, especially if you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing in the first place and you know that. What's your message, Randy, to especially college students who are navigating a situation that's maybe gotten out of hand? I think the first message is always be willing to help, you know, whether it's calling 911, whether it's having the initial conversation and understanding that there are resources out there. People see you. They care. Um, If you are in a situation and you're unsure of what to do, 988 can be a great lifeline. It's for behavioral health crises, and it's an easy number to remember. Um, 
We also have the treatment resource hotline, which I think is great just to get general information and ask questions, whether it's for you or a loved one. And that number is 1-800-920-4343. All right. We're going to give that number again in a minute. So get your pencil and pen now or get your phone out in your notes app so you can write that down or track it for the future. Being prepared, Shana, is really important. Talk about some of the other things with medication lock boxes or um, what to have in your medicine cabinet that can help in an emergency or prevent an emergency. Yeah, so medication lock boxes are super important to have in the home or wherever you're going to keep medication. Those are lock boxes with a passcode to get into, and you can safely store those medications so they don't get in the wrong hands, whether it be children or other adults in the home or the workplace or wherever that may be. Um, you can order those free through the Avoid Opioid SD website. Um, we partner with the Helpline Center to get a one in each home in South Dakota. And you also can be prepared by getting naloxone. Naloxone is the medication that if somebody is overdosing on an opioid or a like substance, it'll help restore normal breathing. And you can get that um, through our statewide standing order. You can go to a participating pharmacy. There's a list on the Avoid Opioid website. So that is kind of your one-stop shop to get information about how to get naloxone. You can go to a participating pharmacy, let them know that you need some naloxone. All the requirements are is you need to be an individual at risk a family member or a close third party, and they'll equip you with the education that you need and the medication. And if finances are an issue, we do have grant funding to provide that free of charge so that we can get naloxone in the hands of as many people as possible. So one of the things I learned when I was at Rapid City last week, someone told me anecdotally I did not talk to Monument Health, but they were saying EMS uh, providers were doing a great job of administering rescue treatment. But this, uh, the opioids or the fentanyl, I guess think we were talking specifically about fentanyl, stays in your system for longer than the Narcan does in some cases. This is not a, uh, we administer this and we're done. Tell me about that. Is that accurate information or what do people need to know? Yeah, we're, you know, we talked with our medical providers that we partner with through the division with our work. And basically that's exactly what we were advised of. Sometimes Narcan is going to have to be administered more than once, especially with synthetic opioids or depending on the potency. Narcan really impacts um, the ability to do an overdose for 30 to 90 minutes. And then after that, if a person is still displaying overdose symptoms, you may have to re-administer it. All right. So lots of risks, but lots of support that exists in the state of South Dakota. Now is the time to have that conversation uh, with your students. If you have a um, a prescription yourself. It's time to have that conversation with the people in your in your family to help support you to make sure there's no accidental overuse or overdose. Um, let's close with those websites and phone numbers. What do you want to make sure that people know so they can get more information? Yeah, so the couple phone numbers that we'd love for people to remember is 988 for behavioral health crisis, as well as the treatment resource hotline, which is 1-800-920-4343. And then the other resource is the avoidopioidsd.com. That website is a great one-stop shop for all the information we've shared today. Wonderful. Everyone's responsibility, Shana Smichael and Randy Peterson, uh, both with the Division of Behavioral Health. Thank you for stopping by. We'll talk to you next time. Thank Thank you. Thank you.
Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. We have smartphones, smart TVs, even smart refrigerators. Why not a smart energy grid? That is a question Dr. Long Zhao is pursuing. In fact, his research into the development of a smart grid just secured a nearly $200,000 grant from the National Science Foundation. Dr. Zhao is an assistant professor of electrical engineering and director of the Smart Grid and Energy Research Lab at South Dakota Mines. And he's joining us now from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital studio in our Rapid City offices with more. Dr. Zhao, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. All right. Thank you for having me. Help people understand the difference between a traditional energy grid and a smart grid. Well, um, you know, speaking for a smart grid, I think uh, we're just trying to make everything smarter. Uh, but it's really hard to define what a smart grid is. We're trying to make power system more efficient, uh, more economic, and uh, just make sure uh, the electricity is affordable for everybody. Now, you have mentioned in your research the importance of um, how human behavior impacts the smart grid usage. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, because uh, in power system, we have something called a demand response. Um, that means we're trying to make demand more responsive. So what is demand in power system? It's a load. Uh, a lot of people, there, they spend a lot of time uh, on, like, understand how different appliances work. But eventually, if you look at the power system, who can decide uh, to turn on different appliances, right? It's, it's us, it's uh, consumers. So that's why in my research, we're trying to understand how human, like what is human behavior? Uh, how they can, like when they want to turn on their AC, like when, when we, they want to turn on their heaters, so something like this. And tell me a little bit about this uh, new study that we're just learning about today where you looked into wildfire smoke and what that does to solar energy generation. Well, wildfire, um, we, we already heard a, a lot about it. Um, and the, the thing is, uh, nobody can, no, now nobody truly understand how much wildfire smoke can reduce solar power output. So um, in this research, we're trying to see like, how we can quantify the effect. And what I understand is the, the really complexities of that, because it might not be the smoke that, you've, that you can see, that you think of being a problem. It might be something higher up in the atmosphere. And of course, we all know from really far away. Tell me about that. Yeah, because uh, uh, a lot of people, they're using PM 2.5 as an indicator to quantify the smoke impact. Okay. But uh, uh, the thing is, the, if you look at the smoke, right, the smoke uh, flows everywhere and it all sometimes go all the way up. And sometimes if you want to measure the air quality, which is not that accurate. So what do we want to do? Because eventually we're trying to understand how so, uh, wildfire smoke affect uh, the, the power output from solar. So we want to see how smoke affect the sunlight. So from here, we're trying to analyze the, the spectrum difference uh, after um, the, the smoke uh, so the, the, the sunshine going through the smoke, and we're trying to see how much uh, the spectrum has been changed. Hmm. Tell me a little bit, uh, going back to this grant from the National Science Foundation and the, the research into the development of a smart grid, what do you expect to happen next in your lab? Well, uh, this is a two-year project. We're trying to understand human behavior, having said that earlier. 
and uh, eventually, hopefully, we can we can have some program uh, to understand human behavior for different consumers. We can have different demand response program, so that we can help power company uh, to understand okay when they're going to have a peak demand, uh, so that they can uh, I would say save money from buying power from wholesale market. Uh, so that we can make power system more reliable. Dr. Long Zhao from South Dakota School of Mines. He's director of the Smart Grid and Energy Research Lab there at Mines. We really appreciate you stopping by with this update. Congratulations on the work, and we look forward to finding out what comes next. All right. Thank you so much. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, the 2023 Farm Bill has a lot of ground to cover and a September 30th deadline to get it written. The USDA reports the ag industry is responsible for about 11% of greenhouse gas emissions, which means big opportunities for the industry to fight climate change, but that also might mean a bigger political fight in the policy phase. Meanwhile, extreme heat events like what we're seeing this week put livestock at risk. Can a new farm bill help producers recover from climate disasters? And a Colorado senator is proposing $60 billion to manage and restore America's forests. That could impact the Black Hills National Forest and the new forest plan, which is also currently under revision. Well, the 2023 Farm Bill is, of course, one of U.S. Senator John Thune's top priorities this session, and he has stopped by our SDPB Kirby Family Studios in Sioux Falls for an update. Senator Thune, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Lori. Great to be with you. Let's start with the heat Mm. and um, extreme heat events like this one and full-out climate disasters Mm -hmm. are on everybody's mind as this Farm Bill goes forward. Are there opportunities, or is that a priority for you to look at the intersection of that in a new Farm Bill? Well, I think there's an increasing, um, obviously, discussion around what in a farm bill can you do uh, to deal with the issue of of climate. And um, I don't know that it's going to get fully engaged in this farm bill, although I think there there will be, uh, coming out of this, um, probably some guidance and direction provided to to the Forest Service and USDA, for example, um, and to farmers generally uh, about, you know, carbon storage, sequestration, capture. Uh, farmers do a great job of that. And um, the question is, can they be rewarded for it? Can they be compensated for it? And that should that be a, a government solution or should it be a market-driven solution? And I think that's the conversation, at least one of the conversations that's happening around this farm bill. Yeah, where is the balance for that? Because when you say market-driven, what I'm thinking in my mind is, you know, how much protection is is good and healthy and how much encourages you know, reckless behavior, for example, mm-hmm. that would be the criticism. What do you think about that? What does that bring up for you? Well, I think, you know, to me, the the, the main, at least, focus in a, in a farm bill that deals with the issue of uh, climate is a conservation title. And, um, and we, in the past at least, have provided a number of incentives and tried to add some flexibility for farmers who do put land into CRP, but basically to take land out of production, put it into native grasses, um, that obviously <coughs> is a good, is a good solution too. Um, but I think the, you know, the, the, that next step is, you know, where do you strike that balance? And is there, um, a, a way in which, uh, farmers could participate in some sort of a program, uh, that would, and, and again, I, I think it's better if it, if it comes up sort of organically, voluntarily, so to speak, uh, uh, where they, uh, a, a value is attached to carbon, credits, 
Um, big companies are looking for, you know, credits to buy. If farmers can figure out how to, you know, store carbon in the ground uh, and, and get credits for those, they could get payment for that for these companies that need to, you know, that need to have, reduce their carbon footprint. Um, the hard part in all that is how do you quantify the value? And nobody, at least yet, I don't think, has come up with a really good uh, approach to that. There are a lot of attempts at it, but I think that's probably at least one of the obstacles is how do you quantify the value? Or what's right. your measuring, you know, what's your, your uh, metric on yeah. that? Just, so. And for people who aren't aware, I mean, farmers know how to store carbon in right. the ground through no-till and, and some of these other, you yep. know, best practices. Um, and they are, and it's, more of them are doing that. And they're doing it. The mm-hmm. question is, how do you value that right. to make it part of your larger effort? And you've worked with Senator Klobuchar, a Democrat mm-hmm. from Minnesota, on some bipartisan um, legislation in that regard. Right. Um, how bipartisan is this, and when does it tumble into either through the Progressive Caucus or the Freedom Caucus, mm-hmm. or just left and right? Well, I think in the at least in the Senate, and I, you know, the House is a tougher, tougher. Uh, you know, that's that's one I probably. Uh, would have a hard time assessing exactly how that comes out over there in terms of the farm bill. But I think in the Senate, at least, the farm bill historically has been very bipartisan. Um, the 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 fights that happen in farm bills tend to be more regional. Uh, you know, here in South Dakota, we raise corn, wheat, soybeans, livestock. And in the South, they raise cotton, rice, peanuts. And California and Michigan, they raise specialty crops. And so there's always a big fight among the commodities and regions of the country. Um, but the the politics of farm bills, at least in this part of the country, and that's why I work a lot with Amy Klobuchar and others from this region, uh, those issues tend to be fairly well aligned. And, um, yeah, so we are working on some things, and I'm hoping that that uh, foundation will serve us well in terms of getting a bill across the finish line in the Senate. I think in the Senate, at least the committee, although we haven't scheduled a markup yet, um, works closely together. So the chairman... Debbie Stabnow, who's from Michigan, <clears throat> the ranking Republican is uh, John Bozeman from Arkansas, and I've been on the committee now. Every farm bill we've done in the last, this will be my fifth, been very involved in, and so working with both of their staffs, uh, trying to incorporate some of our ideas, but I think that uh, at least if, if the past is any, if, if past is prologue and any guide, uh, I think we'll do pretty well in getting a bill, at least out of the committee, hopefully across the Senate floor. The question is, does the House pass a bill? And uh, can we reconcile the two if it does? Or if it doesn't, can we get them to take up the Senate bill? Five, this is your fifth farm bill. Mm-hmm. What would you define as progress? We've, we've really made progress on this. And then start there. And then I guess some new obstacles that you haven't seen in the previous five is what I would ask you next. But in, over five farm bills, what would you say, hey, I, we got that right? Well, I think that the, one of the things that's evolved a lot in the cornerstone of the safety net for any farm bill is crop insurance. And crop insurance has had lots of fits and starts through the years. When I first got to Congress, it didn't work at all. Nobody used it. And so anytime you had a disaster, it was they would come to Congress and ask for an ad hoc uh, emergency disaster bill. And so we were, you know, writing big checks at the time. Now, the, farm, the subsequent farm bills have refined crop insurance in a way that it actually is a very useful tool, workable, uh, in which farmers pay a premium like they would on any insurance. And then the, the, the obviously part of that is, is, is also subsidized. But, you know, it's about a 57 to 43% match. But there's – so that, that program to me is now the anchor of our federal farm policy. And then we've, in, pre, in subsequent farm bills, um, created the 2014 bill. We create a program called Agricultural Risk Coverage 
which is a, a, a complements uh, crop insurance as part of the safety net. And then the price loss coverage program was created subsequent to that. The disaster programs that basically apply to li livestock, which doesn't benefit, at least has in the past, in farm bills, um, the uh, livestock indemnity program, the livestock forage program, were both programs we were involved in shaping. And so there's now something out there for livestock producers when they when we hit these really bad weather cycles or price catastrophes and things like that. So those are some things that we've um, incorporated. Um, but ag actually, agricult agricultural risk coverage program was something that was our that was our program. And in the 18 Farm Bill, uh, we called the the SHIP program, which was the soil health. Um, Soil Health and Improvement Program, SHIP program. And that was designed to create a, a, a program that was more effective in some ways than the CRP program. So if you couldn't put large tracts in, so you could take the least producing acreage on your farm, put it in this program voluntarily without the government deciding how you, you know, what the requirements are, and get a reduction in your crop insurance premium or partial payment for it. And it was a shorter term, three to five years. Now, the take-up rate hasn't been great, but we think it will be. And so that came out of the 2018 bill. There's always in every farm bill things that we're trying to refine, tweak, make work better, in some cases come up with new solutions. And I would say every farm bill has had a few of those. Um, this one, we've got several ideas on the conservation title that we've worked on. Uh, we've got some proposed changes in the commodity title that would affect both uh, the ARC program and the PLC program on reference prices and updates and mandatory base acres. Uh, so <clears throat> when you ask that question, I tell you, get me going here because we, you know, there's a lot of in each of the title, the farm bills and, and the forestry title in the eight bill and the 14 bill, both of them had significant um, the forestry. Uh, there is a forestry title in the farm bill, uh, interestingly enough. National forests are under USDA, Forest Service is under USDA, and that's kind of a weird thing, you know, jurisdictionally that's happened in the past. So um, we've had some significant changes to a lot of the stewardship programs that affect our national forests and farm bills, too. And yeah. uh, so and you were just in the Black Hills. I was in the Black Hills last week as well and uh, spent a lot of time with Forest Service employees and in the forest with private landowners uh, talking about the timber inv inventory and mining. Uh, you and I have talked about uh, timber mm -hmm. extensively in the past. Now, the USGS, the U.S. Geological Service, is uh, contracted to do this new measurement through LIDAR, aerial LIDAR. So if people don't know, you know, they're going to get a really good look at the inventory here in um, the next months mm -hmm. to years. And there has been some debate about what this inventory is and how many trees can be taken to meet the target of the timber industry. Multi-use, again, most right. listeners who are listening to this understand that's really critical to the infrastructure of the forest. But what I heard a lot of was there aren't as many trees left as you might think. Hmm. Tell me a little bit about the importance of getting that new data. Mm -hmm. What are you looking for? What do you want to know about the real inventory in the Black Hills National Forest? Well, I just think accuracy as much as possible. And I know that, you know, the, the, because I think when you're going to make decisions about it, you need as, as much, the, the data needs to be as precise as possible. And there are a lot of discrepancies, and in the Forest Service's evaluation relative to the the Black Hills for Advisory Group's understanding of and and, and uh, evaluation of uh, of what the actual inventory is out there. So I, I think I'm hoping at least just having good data on which to make decisions. So you know the 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 harvest this year is going to be significantly down. It was supposed to be 90,000 CCFs. It's going to be significantly, I think, under that, uh, which creates strains on the um, you know, the timber uh, industry out there. 
But as you point out, there are multiple uses to the Black Hills, and there isn't hardly anybody, whether you're a logger or a miner or a recreational or a horse rider or a biker or a walker. I mean, there are so many um, people who utilize the Black Hills. Uh, you want to make sure that it's a treasure that we maintain, and I think one of the ways you maintain it is through effective management, and I, and I think you also reduce the risk of wildfires. The one thing you don't want to have happen is create so many fuel loads out there that when a, uh, you have an event and it lights up, um, then you be, take what is a, a carbon sink and create a carbon source because when it's burning, it's releasing all, all the carbon. And I know there are disagreements about you know the um, whether or not management is an effective tool. Uh, I, I I think it is, and I think particularly if you're trying to mitigate some of the insect infestations like pine beetles that we've had in the Black Hills in in the, in the past. But I guess what I would say is um, as we look at the future, and they're in the process of revising the forest management plan. I hope at least having good data uh, is, is really critical. And just getting continuity out there in the leadership. I mean, we've had 11 forest supervisors in the last seven years in the Black Hills. So Why it's do you think really that is? really hard. Well, the turnover is, uh, it, there's a couple of them are. Like, well, do you know what, you know, like I know what the rumors are. Yeah. No, which I'm not going to say right. because they're rumors. They're just that. But right. do you know why that turnover has been happening? Well, I mean, this last one was two weeks. And, yeah, it was, uh, there were some, it wasn't, it wasn't rumors, I don't think. I think it was a real problem. So they pulled this guy back. But um, they, there just has been this sort of, and I don't know, I know it's a hard one to manage. In fact, most people would tell you the Black Hills, partly because, you know, we started doing this in 1899, the timber program in the Black Hills. But by then, because of the gold rush in 76, there were already a lot of private ownership. So you're working around, you got the Forest Service in this, you know, big um, protected area, but you got all these private, private ownership that you're working around. It's probably the most populated forest in the country, <clears throat> just in terms of, you know, inhabited uh, by people, which creates complications. And, um, and then you've had all these fights through the years uh, over the, uh, you know, the amount of, of harvest and uh, whether or not or how it ought to be managed and, and managed effectively. So it just seems like at least as they send people out from Washington, D.C., they, they, they just really churn through them. And part of it, too, I think, is being able to work with the local community. And, and, and that's a challenge, too, because there are in a multiple-use forest, uh, lots of interest. Um, you know, you've got the, the logging industry, you've got the environmental groups. Um, there's always, it has been for a long time, and when I was first involved in politics, a lot of litigation around this. We kind of worked through some of that. It settled down a bit, but there's still a lot of disagreements about what's the best plan forward. And the only thing I'll tell you is that because it's one of the um, most productive forests that the Forest Service has in terms of the timber harvest, they need to have that industry there uh, for those times when they need to go in and, and, and thin because there are times when you get the, the risk of forest fires grows or you get an insect infestation. So if, the, if that industry is killed, yeah. if it dies because they don't have enough uh, business to keep them going, that's not a good outcome either. And so we've been trying to work with the Forest Service. I've met with Vilsack on this and talked to their, you know, the, the leaders in that community uh, about uh, a long-term plan just to ensure that if it's not coming out of the Black Hills, that we're at least getting timber from somewhere to keep these mills busy. 
I want to go back to something that you said about mining because mm-hmm. a lot of the mining regulations are from the 1872 mining right, law, right? right? It hasn't yeah. been substantially updated. So I'm going to ask you in a minute if you think there should be major revisions to that. But first, for people who are aware of the mineral exploration projects that are in the hills and the uh, uh, Secretary Deb Holland from the U.S. Uh, Department of Interior and Bureau of Land Management are studying further this uh, Jenny Gulch project. So right now, no mining can happen, um, no mining exploration. I should say that's a mining exploration project. Um, As they look at the impact on the watershed, for the Mm -hmm. Rapid City watershed, as I talk to people in Custer, there's another program, same gold company, it's called Newark. They're worried about their water too. And what they really want me to ask you is, is our watershed in Custer and French Creek as important as a watershed that flows into Ellsworth Air Force Base? And I think you could understand Mm -hmm. what a small town is getting at there when when some of their concerns are... um, Public input is over for that project. We're waiting for the Forest Service to decide whether they'll grant the categorical exclusion or whether they'll kind of go the way of Jenny Gulch. It needs to, there needs to be a pause. We need an environmental assessment mm-hmm. or environmental impact study. What do you want to tell the people of Custer? Well, I mean, I think that any community in the Black Hills, you know, we all need water to survive. And so uh, water quality is a, is, is, a, is a huge issue. And I think that, um, I do think that you have to, at times, you've got to modernize and update laws that pertain to these, uh, because t- things change significantly over time. Um, but I, and, and, and I think you, you know, you can be, you can take an approach, we all ought to be interested in responsible stewardship of this resource, because it's a, it's a wonderful resource. And, uh, but again, I, th- I think getting the data, <clears throat> which I think they're, you know, again, accumulating, working on, it starts there. If you're going to make good decisions, you got to have good information. And I know there are a lot of these sort of dated historic claims um, that go back a long ways, and uh, and I think the um, the questions about whether or not those are ever, ever acted upon uh, is part of what's at the essence of this discussion and debate right now. But I think let's get the let's get the the, the information um, and let's try and I think there's always a and my argument would be Laura I think there's always an argument. Uh, 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 a case for collaboration and trying to figure out how to solve these problems in a collaborative way instead of going to your corners and litigating it. And um, and we've tried to do that in previous farm bills. You know, the 2014 farm bill had the categorical exclusion for uh, pine beetle infestation up to 3,000 acres, uh, you know, some exemptions from NEPA. And I think at the time that made sense. Um, but, you know, again, every time you do a farm bill, which is every four or five years, things mm-hmm. change. And, you know, you've got to modernize those, those laws and the policies and make them reflect what's happening currently. I want to go back. And so what I'm hearing is that you are open to the idea of, of a revision of the 1872 mining laws. That's well, what I heard you say. Yeah. I know it's more complicated than that, but it's not a closed door. I'm not hearing a closed door there. Well, it's, uh, you know, a statute that's 150 years old. <laughs> you know, I mean, and I know there are um, some of the same... Uh, claims and property issues that probably existed back then, but you, you got to recognize this is a, it's a, it's it's clearly a different time, um, and would, like I said, there's a big big population of the Black Hills, which there wasn't back then. Would you support the mineral withdrawal for the entire Black Hills region? The, the mineral what? The mineral withdrawal. Oh well, um, I don't know that I have a I have an answer on that just yet. I mean, I think again, I'm I'm. I think we need to get to as much information and data about uh, the impacts of uh, both past and present operations 
you know, because there are some, like I said, some very dated historic claims out there. Um, and I think in order to evaluate those properly, you need to have, you got to have the information. Yeah. One more time, because I just want to make sure that you heard this part of the question, which mm-hmm. is the people of Custer want to know that you believe their watershed is as important as the Rapid Creek watershed. <laughs> well, sure. I don't want to, you know, because they're <coughs> no, going to no, listen to that. They're going to say, oh, we start talking about a whole bunch of other things. Let's mm-hmm. just go back to that thing of the importance of a, a watershed for a small town right. when a mining company um, wants to leverage what may be legal. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, and Custer is, I mean, it's a, arguably a small town in a relative sense, but in, in compared to where I grew up, it's kind of a big town. Uh, but there are a lot of people there, and there are a lot of people, particularly uh, between, you know, Mother's Day and Labor Day, uh, yeah, a lot of folks in, in, uh, who are uh, in Custer. And, um, you know, it's a great community. And, and yeah, we ought to, I mean, the, the, the policies that would apply in a community like Rapid City or the, the expectations that we have about water quality, they should, be the, they should be the same no matter where you live. Senator John Thune, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks. Good to be with you. Thanks, Lori. Let's take a moment now for South Dakota history. During this week in 1954, a marker indicating the original site for the Medicine Rock near Highway 212 was dedicated. The giant prayer rock served as a common landmark near the Missouri River, but the construction of the Oahe Dam and Lake Oahe threatened to inundate the rock It was relocated 12 miles east to the town of Gettysburg. South Dakota is not a place that typically has huge boulders sitting next to a river. Medicine Rock is a unique rock found near the mouth of the Little Cheyenne, which is where the town of Forest City was founded in 1883. Known as the Medicine Rock, it measures about 18 feet long by 10 feet wide. It weighs an estimated 40 tons. The rock appears to be a glacial boulder deposited by ice when a glacier moved south across North America. Samples were taken from it in 1994, and a geologist determined that the rock had been formed elsewhere but had settled in South Dakota between 350 and 400 million years ago. The rock contains man-made markings of human footprints, the carving of a hand, and also tracks of a bear. One theory says the Medicine Rock's prints were formed as stories were passed down orally from generation to generation. In one such story, a bear chases a Native American man toward the Missouri River. He comes across a large rock and tries to escape by running across it. The story says that as the man runs across the rock, he leaves his footprints and handprints embedded for history to see. Then, the Great Spirit picks him up and rescues him from the bear. That boulder, by the way, was relocated again in 1989. It was moved to a new home at the Dakota Sunset Museum in Gettysburg. But the historical marker at the original location of Medicine Rock was dedicated during this week in 1954. Production assistance for This Week in South Dakota History comes from Brad Tennant. Dr. Tennant is a writer and professor of history at Dakota Wesleyan University. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to celebrate some local music. John Bakken with Tiger Meat joins us. We're on listener-supported SDPB Radio.
to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, there is a new issue of the seasonal music zine Tiger Meat available for the eyes and ears of music lovers across the state. The summer 2023 issue is on the shelves, and that latest issue highlights the talents of a variety of South Dakota sounds. I'll name just a few of the featured artists we're going to talk about on our show today. There's Tiffany Johnson. You just heard a little bit of her song, Warning Label and the stem cells, and then we're going to end our hour with Kevin Locke. John Bakken is the zine's author. He's also a musician, an orchestra teacher, an all-around music enthusiast, and he is with me for another conversation. I hope it's one of many from SDPB's Janine Basinger Studio at South Dakota State University. Hey, John, welcome back. Hello, Lori. Thank you so much for having me back. How much fun is Tiffany Johnson? Like, what? Oh an my artist. gosh, so fun! How did you How did you learn about her music? Uh, you know, I follow a lot of uh, Rapid City area musicians, and uh, I think it was Natasha Adelweiss, uh posted about it uh, about her when she was uh, in town for a moment. So, started following her, and she's just putting out such super great music. Um, do you want me to kind of give you a backstory? Or yeah, Black mean, Hills Kid so cool. gone to Nashville. Tell us a little bit about her. Right, yeah. Yeah, so she um, she kind of fell in love with songwriting at the uh, Wild West Songwriters Festival in Deadwood. Yes. Um, when she was real young, her dad was a musician, so she was like seven, and she went to see all these super cool songwriters, realized that, oh, yeah, there's like people that not only sing music, but there's people behind the scenes that their whole job is just writing music, too, and kind of like searched for that for a while. Um, she ended up leaving high school in uh, a semester early uh, to kind of get out of the whole COVID scene mm -hmm. and uh, jump down to Nashville to hopefully uh, make it big. And she's she's putting out great music, writing songs for herself, writing songs for other people. She's just so cool. Yeah, absolutely. Let's listen to a little bit more, shall we? This is Eyes Closed. Fluorescent lighting with your eyes hold out You whispered, I think I love you Like it was some terrible confession Like you were still stuck second guessing And I talked to you up to all your prep school friends Who always down on my knees Like you were some secondary Jesus The one thing I wanted to believe something righteous if you can't stop it then you shouldn't fight it someone we denied it burning stronger than the holy ghost you can see it with your eyes closed eyes closed you can see it with your eyes closed 
Again, if you are just tuning in, that's a little bit of Tiffany Johnson. We're talking with John Bakken, who uh, compiles the zine Tiger Meat and uh, really dives into the South Dakota music scene and folks who have connections to to that music scene. That's uh, Tiffany Johnson from the Black Hills, but now making multi-layered pop tunes, country, alt, John. What do you call, you know, what do you, how do you describe her music, John? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's it. I think that's yeah. it. Yeah, it's it's like very pop, with just like maybe in that especially warning label a little twinge of country, right? But right, yeah. it's especially fun because the the folks that she uh, works with in production are all from South Dakota too. I, wow. I want to I end up talking to them hopefully sometime. But yeah, she she mentioned that the folks that make all the backing tracks and stuff are all uh, Rapid City kids too. So I got I got to start diving and see what they're up to. All right, let's hop to the other side of the state with some Sioux Falls kids because the stem cells. Um, I happen to know Simon Keller because he went to co- or he went to high school with my uh, with my kid, coming up in the orchestra. No way! Yes, absolutely. I'm a big Simon Keller fan. Hi, Simon. And uh, we're watching that kid's <laughs> talent from you know when he was just a little shaver. I'm sure he's happy I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the stem cells. <laughs> They are so cool. Yeah, and they've kind of been together since that high school time, been kicking it. I think they've been around about a decade now uh, and just get better and better with every single release. This latest one, um, they really get into the story of how they recorded it, which was super fun. They bounced on to St. Louis to, to work with this guy they discovered on TikTok that they just love and who's like pretty experimental. Like, As, one does. The- As one does, yeah. you, find, you find your next music producer on TikTok. Right, before we That's go any more yeah. about this process, because it's a super interesting uh story that you covered in Tiger Meat, but let's hear, it's going to get a little loud, let's hear a little bit of the stem cells. Pony Show from Stem Cells, a band out of Southeast South Dakota. We're talking with John Bakken about uh, the music scene right now. All right. How'd they make all this stuff? Because they took a little trip and they didn't know whether it was day or night, according to your interview. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about that. I know. Doesn't that sound like a magical dream? Yeah. They went to this... (laughs) They went to this recording studio down in St. Louis. It's this uh, renovated old church. And, yeah, they said there was, like, one window on one door. It was just this whole, like, record all night, sleep until 1 or 2 in the afternoon, and repeat for six days straight. 
Uh, it sounded like a total blast, and he had all sorts of fun little gadgets and toys. Like, did you yeah. – <laughs> the part about a guitar that came free with a Volkswagen Beetle back right. in, like, yeah. 2007 or something? <laughs> you got to read this interview. Wonky, like, yeah. <laughs> My favorite part so of cool. my favorite part of the interview is the anecdote where uh, one of the band members says the producer is just like, "Hey, that thing you're doing, like, stop it. That's bad." And then they're like, "Okay, <laughs> yeah, I respect that. Yep. Yeah, feedback. Yes, yeah, so the the, feed, the the feedback. Don't waste time doing stuff that's not working. Is kind of the uh, sort of the creative message broadly. But the way he delivered that story was just a just a hoot it was great yeah Yeah. (laughs) all right so this is the tiger meat summer 2023 issue we're talking about and basically what you do is you go read these great interviews that john bakken does and then all the artists also mention like their essential listening for south dakota music so it's a you know it is a rabbit hole that you get to save and put on your shelf um it's like the algorithm in print or i don't even know how there you go yeah (laughs) it's better than the algorithm i'll tell you that i'm gonna steal that quote (laughs) i'm gonna steal that quote on the back of my book yeah we're gonna end (laughs) it's it's yours for the taking it's yours um (laughs) yes we're gonna end with our dear friend kevin Locke, and uh now we're gonna slow down the pace a little bit i think a lot of people know uh, a little bit about kevin but you're gonna hear, hear some more here but first song of the white buffalo calf woman by kevin Locke. from our dear friend uh, Kevin Locke and by ours I mean uh, like humanities I actually never met him in person but he um, was a great educator and uh, talked about the oneness of humanity I know John our mutual friend Eliza Blue was very close to him featured him on one of SDPB's Wish You Were Here episodes which you can still find online for people who don't know Kevin um, tell us a little bit about his work as a musician I, it's hard to know where to start with this, but, yeah. but he uh, basically um, tells the story of uh, in the 1970s uh, seeing a performance by Richard Fulbull playing the uh, indigenous North American flute. Um, and he took some time to kind of thank him after the performance. Um, this is somebody who was, you know, Richard Fulbull was born, I think he said, in like the 1870s. So he was in his like late 90s by this time and had been playing this uh, instrument his whole life. And uh, Kevin talked to him and said, you know, is there anybody else who's going to carry this torch and, and play this? And he said, nope, nobody's interested. He, <laughs> Kevin Kevin asked again, you know, is, like, is there any family member or anything? Nope, nobody wants to play. And Kevin kind of said, yeah, that's a shame. That's a shame. And uh, somebody should really do that. And so <laughs> and, and, and then Richard Fulbull just stops everything and, and looks at him and said, it's you. You're you're the one who needs to carry this on, and and he didn't really pay attention. A few uh, weeks or months later, Richard Fubel passes away, and he uh, gets actually one of, of a flute that Richard Fubel carved from his mom, um, uh, from Kevin's mom that she had that mm-hmm. she just happened to have a couple lying around, and, and started playing that. And and I mean, he went and traveled the world, um, uh, and r- really spreading spreading this incredible music, you know, um, uh, everywhere. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, we're going to end the show with a little bit more from Kevin Locke because that is just um, 
the moment that we probably all need in on any given day, frankly. Yes. But John yeah. Bakken, local music matters. The scene is happening. There are legends that we say goodbye to and then uh, young people who are up and coming that we pay close attention to. Tell everybody in like 30 seconds what you want them to know about Tiger Meat. You can read all the articles for free online at tigermeatmusic.com. And uh, the zine comes out quarterly. And very, very soon, we're actually going to have, like, I got a grant from the South Dakota Arts Council to print some real books. So those will be on shelf yes. soon, too. All right. And you're going to come back and talk to us about all the great uh, artists and interviews that you've done in the future, right? Say yes. I would love to. All Thank right. you so much. Look forward to that. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, this is the first flute song, Kevin Locke. And we thank you for listening. <laughs>